Today, the passage from the lectionary that we'll be talking about is from Acts 17. Uh, it's somewhat of a famous story that Luke tells about the time that Paul goes to Athens and goes to the Areopagus uh, to sort of have this conversation, this message, this dialogue uh, with some of the perennial philosophers uh, of that time. And so uh, for many people, it's a story that's like, oh yeah, what, you know, what does it mean for our faith to interact with intellectualism, with the academy, to uh, have these cross-cultural conversations? Uh, and so I've chosen the title of Expressing the Unknown, because as Paul uh, begins his message, he's going to talk about this uh, idol that he has found uh, in Athens to an unknown God. And so we here at Vox value mystery, uh, and we talk about really leaning into that. And I think at times uh, that can maybe seem like a bit of a juxtaposition or contradiction. What would it mean to express mystery or to express the unknown, uh, to be able to hold uh, intention that our faith and our lives are oftentimes shrouded with and perhaps even deliciously invited into uh, mystery. And yet how then do we learn to be able to share uh, fruitfully and joyfully uh, from that space? Uh, I wanna start at the end of our story because uh, as I was studying this passage this week, uh, two feminist scholars really helped me to see this passage in a new lens and light that uh, I'm going to try to bring forward for us uh, today. And so the end of our story, uh, we have verses 32 through 34, when they, this is the people that Paul is in this conversation with at the Areopagus, heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, we will hear you again about this, which, you know, kind of sounds like that. Oh, yeah, that's super interesting. Sure, do come back. I'd love, give me your email. Well, yeah. Um, at that point, Paul left them, but some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Maris, and others with them. Uh, some things that I had never considered, probably because they're things I had never had to consider um, because of uh, how I show up in the world, is that Damaris, who is here, this woman, is particularly a curious addition to mention that the Oropagus itself was a council solely for men, and that most of the people who would have been expected to be there in this philosophical conversation would have also been considered men. It's not to say that women might not have been sort of at the periphery, perhaps, of this, but the conversation would have been a conversation addressed from a man to men about issues that would seemingly be meant to primarily impact men of the day. It would be sort of this curious thing. And if you're like, there, there was this like men's retreat and I don't know who, someone, I, I, the name that came to mind. So I'm just going to say, Jordan Peterson was there sharing things. And I know people are like, I saw Christopher right now. I promise it's going to be okay. Uh, and uh, we, you know, he was sharing the things that he was sharing to a bunch of men. And that was, that was seemingly going, whatever it was going. And then this curious thing on the side, and there was this woman who heard these things and somehow was invited in and felt like there was this space. Probably not what happening in the illustration that I just posed for us, but um, 
it would be a curious thing. And so these feminist scholars uh, suggested that perhaps this is a key by which we are meant to interpret all that goes before it. What, what might have been happening in Paul's discourse that seemingly these hierarchies of exclusion that would have perhaps normally barred her from feeling like this was a message that had any entryway or any meaning uh, for her or her life have somehow perhaps been suspended, have been toppled, have been overcome, that uh, the mountains have been made low, that the valleys have been raised high, and somehow in this discourse that we're about to look at from Paul, uh, Damaris or Damaris, I'm not sure how you're supposed to say her name, uh, fills this invitation that there is something about what God is up to in the way that Paul is sharing it that encompasses her and invites her full humanity and flourishing and participation to the table. So I wanted to give us some time to those who uh, feel perhaps who might want to either just reflect for yourself or if you want to, if you know your neighbor, feel comfortable sharing with your neighbor to answer this question. When is a time you engage with someone radically different from yourself and what was that like for you? This is not a share or die moment. So if you don't want to share that really uh, radically different conversation with someone else, you're more than happy to just reflect on that yourself. But if you'd like to share it with a neighbor, let's take a couple minutes to do that. So would anyone care to share a time you were engaging with someone in a conversation that seemed radically different, that person was radically different from yourself? And, what was, and or what was that like for you? Me too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I want us to reflect on that. If there are no takers, that's all right. But uh, we will uh, keep holding that because part of what Paul is doing is he is engaging across difference. Even in uh, the three people that are named at the end of our story, right? We have Paul, who is this Jewish person from Tarsus. We have Dionysius, who is this Arapa guy, which would have meant he was an elite Athenian male. And then there is Damaris, who is likely a Roman citizen in a Greek town, and so would have had double layers of colonialism on top of her, right? She has both the sense of, I am a Roman citizen in a Greek town, and I am a woman in a patriarchal structure. And so there are all kinds of conversation that's happening across difference. And I think it's okay to acknowledge that oftentimes when we engage in those types of conversations, um, we don't always get everything correct, right? Like we, we might find our saying things that we're like, oh, did that just come out of my mouth? Kind of like I felt a few moments ago when I mentioned the name Jordan Peterson in my illustration. And I was like, I really want that back, but I just, I just did it. I'm sorry, forgive me. Um, thank you. Thank you. Taking it back, bringing it back in. Um, we can find, because we don't know what we don't know, because growing up as little kids, the first things our brains notice is difference. And we start to assign meaning, whether we realize it or not, to things like that, that, um, we are retreating to those kinds of places in those conversations. And 
holding assumptions that we've never even realized were just gross assumptions or stereotypes about people and groups. Um, and because of that, those conversations, though I think they can be incredibly rich and meaningful, can also be incredibly fraught as well. Our story begins in verse 22, not in verse 32, where we started, where it says, Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely spiritual you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. It's not precisely sure scholars are, are divided about whether this, like, I see how extremely spiritual you are, is really meant to be like a compliment in the sense like, oh, wow, yeah, you're in tune. You have connection to purpose and meaning and what matters. And I can tell there's a vitality to who you are. Or if it's kind of like this, like, oh, yeah, you, you've got all the spirituality. You are Mr. or Mrs. Spirituality. It's, it's not exactly sure. We don't know, uh, perhaps, in what tone Paul is beginning uh, this message. But he then talks about that he went through the city of Athens, and he was seeing all these places of public worship, all of these different altars. And I think it's important to remember that an altar and a table are one and the same, right? That this is this place where people are coming together around purpose that matters. They're giving thanks for something. Uh, they are trying to find nourishment for their life uh, in community with one another. And so Paul is going around Athens and looking at all of these places, sort of being exposed to this metropolis of his day. It says, I found an altar to an unknown God. And so what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And so Paul has gone around and he's seen this. And I think it's important to remember that Paul is a person who had been steeped in his Jewish faith and tradition. Willie James Jennings uh, reminds us about idols. They mark the boundary of difference, the wall of separation, and the point of divine hatred. Death follows idolatry. No one seriously devoted to the God of Israel would traffic in the common religious currencies of Athens. He goes on to state, there is a miracle Luke is performing with Paul's words. Here is a serious Jew touching the unclean thing, Gentiles. That we have this person who would have likely seen uh, all of the religious trappings as Athen, of Athens as dangerous, as off limits, as forbidden, but in order to embody God's beautiful new way in the world, God's global family, the mystical body of Christ, rather than retreating in revulsion or with disdain, Paul leans in. Paul goes on a tour of this. Paul is willing to experience what is out there. I wonder for us uh, if a practice we might be invited into uh, would be noticing our own idols. What are the things that 
that we hold dear, that are sacred to us, that perhaps we are performing some level of conscious or unconscious cultic observance too, and how is that impacting us and our community and shared life together? And there are many, many, many types of idols that we could name, and I will totally acknowledge that uh, the three that I'm going to be looking at are probably because of what has been going on in our world right now and that feels particularly heavy to my own heart. And I know that there might be things for you in your world that experience different pressure points for you and that you might want to name those idols. And that's great. We probably, as John Calvin once famously said, our hearts are idol-making factories. So there's probably not any limit to the amount of idols um, we could name. But uh, I have listed sort of in three big terms, but then have specific things connected to them, uh, scapegoating. And I could imagine perhaps Paul walking around Austin and particularly perhaps around the Capitol and saying, I went through your state and noticed you dehumanize vulnerable trans kids, imperiling their well-being for political and religious gain the way that we are so often willing to target groups who are the most vulnerable and who seemingly have the least amount of political power just in order to enshrine our own power and the violence and destruction that that reaps towards those communities who are already so painfully marginalized. And particularly when it comes to the ways that we might be limiting the healthcare and the conversations and just the ability to exist in public spaces and show up as your true self that seems to be underway not only in this state, but in many states around the country, the way that leads and can lead to much more fear and isolationism and statistics even show us perhaps even people who might feel like they are not welcomed on this earth and be threatened to do harm to themselves. I think about the isolationism that Paul might go around our country. And so I went through your country and noticed you act as if you have no responsibility toward your Latin American neighbors as they look to you for refuge, for asylum, for their own humanity to be affirmed and to be cared for how you act as if you were somehow independent of any other person other than yourself as a body politic, and what are the consequences that that has to our global community if that is our posture. And thirdly, the violence that I, Paul might say, I went through your land and noticed you act as if the answer to mass shootings are just more instruments of death that we just somehow need to find more ways to protect ourselves with violence, to be armed against violence, and how it seems like particularly we are sacrificing our children and people in public spaces, whether those are schools or malls or even places of worship, uh, that there are these idols that we seemingly have in our culture. And again, I know that we could keep going. If I were to go around, each of us could probably start to notice and to name idols that we have uh, in our world and how they are having their destructive thing. But 
I notice, and it was part of what drew me as I was studying this passage to go ahead and notice with you what I was noticing, that Paul does not shy away from those, but instead draws close to name them, to become curious about them and how they are operating in our world. The passage goes on, verse 24, Paul continues, the God who made the world and everything in it, who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human's head, nor is God served by human hands as though God needed anything, since God gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. In the Greco-Roman world that Paul was speaking into, it was a world that was arranged around benefactors, around being in debt and repaying debt to other people, usually in a chance to try to find some sense of upward mobility, that you're trying to be in classes with people and parties with people that are all going to have this upward trajectory so that as they need a favor, they owe you something, and when you need a favor, they'll owe and vice versa and this kind of thing. And this was really the arrangements that supported economically and politically uh, the world, the Greco-Roman world of Paul's day. And so there is this incredibly subversive thing that I had never noticed before, that if Paul is then stating, but there is this God who has made the world and everything in it, and this God has no need from any of us. None of us can find a way to put God in our debt. We cannot somehow make God that we are God's benefactors or vice versa, that Paul is essentially introducing this idea that would be radically subverting and questioning the economic arrangements of the day, that if everything ultimately comes from God and flows to God, if there is to be any benefactor at all, then it is God, but it is not you. It is not that person. It is not that system it would be an idea that if taken to fruition would topple the economic arrangements, the political arrangements of the day. And so what's the fuss, the formerly unknown subversion is that God as creator neither owes nor needs from anyone. And how does that perhaps invite, I could imagine Damaris perhaps was walking by the Oropagus and hears this and starts to have things go off in her mind and heart about, wait, wait a minute, if God is the creator of everything, then that means the economic arrangements that have kept me out are off the table. This invitation begins to be birthed perhaps in her mind and in her heart. Our passage continues, from one ancestor, verse 26, God made all peoples to inhabit the whole earth and allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps fumble about for and find God, though indeed God is not far from each one of us. To be a member of the Oropagus, you had to be a free-born Athenian male who could demonstrate through your ancestry.com or whatever they were using in the day that you also had three generations of fathers, grandfathers, and great-grandfathers who were also free Athenian males in your lineage if you wanted even to have entrance into or to be considered for this elite club. And ancestry in that day, and honestly, at times, though we 
look at it in different ways and how that networking and, and privilege uh, finds us had a lot of impact in the Greco-Roman world of Paul and in the world that we find ourselves in today. And so again, we see Paul questioning uh, the very foundations that the economic and political arrangements of the time would have been built upon. Well, wait a minute. We have one from one ancestor. God made all peoples to inhabit. There, there, there is not the same type of categorization that we might think of in finding superiority that we belong to this group or to this culture in juxtaposition to that group or to that culture. Paul is rooting in this God that Paul is saying is this unknown God that Paul wants to share from the fruits of the mystery with to the Athenians. That this God is creating a space where those hierarchies can be toppled. Uh, just this past week as a staff and as NAV, uh, we spent some significant time in conversation um, with a consultant who does a lot of work thinking about non-hierarchical structures and what it looks like in organizations to try to implement that and even naming for us, hey, even though that's a place that we are trying to move forward and toward as a faith community, what might be some of the tacit lingering hierarchies that are still in place that we haven't fully named? And what does it look like for us to try to walk away from that and build something collectively together? What might that mean? And it's as if Paul is holding out that vision that says, that's, that's who God is. And that's who God invites us to be as a people, to not allow the old paradigms to constrict us, but instead to find this free space that Paul is creating with his very words. The next formerly unknown subversion is this God-given common humanity that is intended to topple the divisions. Verse 28, for in God, we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. Paul is speaking some of the poetry of the day and seeing the spiritual fruit and vitality that is there, but carrying this forward to say, you're, you're already on a spiritual journey. What, what, what does it look like for you to allow that to open you up to this mystery, to this unknown God who wants to take you to a new place, who wants to build an entirely new kind of community? Uh, as a kid, I really loved Everything by Judy Bloom, and perhaps it was the patriarchy because I don't know how I didn't read this book. But the only th book I think I did not read of Judy Bloom when I was in elementary school was "Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret." Uh, I've I've read like every other book that was at least available at the Travis Heights Elementary School Library about Judy Bloom probably like five times. Like if they were still in existence and you went back and saw that library card, if they still have it from like circa 1990 or whatever, you would see Christopher Mack, Christopher Mack, Christopher Mack written over and over again on so many of these Judy Bloom books. And yet somehow, again, probably just going to name it. It's probably this like, Margaret, I was not me. I'm, I'm a cool boy, whatever. Uh, you know, toxic patriarchy, blah, blah, blah. Um, 
for whatever reason, did not read this book and still have not, though I plan to correct that. But I did go see the film and this film is based on a book that came out in 1970. So I have no problem sharing the course of it. It doesn't feel like a spoiler at this point, uh, 53 years after the fact. Um, but if you've read the book or if you've seen the movie, uh, you know that Margaret comes from a family where her mother was raised Protestant and her father is Jewish, uh, but both of her parents don't really uh, identify strongly, if at all, uh, with the religious teachings uh, that they were handed. And they have said to Margaret that she can choose whatever it is she wants to believe about faith and spirituality uh, when she is an adult, that they're not going to place anything upon her. But you see those grandparents lingering on the periphery who seem to be more than willing to uh, <laughs> interject uh, some of the richness of what they really prize and see as beautiful and good in their respective religious traditions. And so Margaret has not particularly been concerned about spirituality, but she has a teacher that encourages her that perhaps it's time that she begins reflecting on what she would value and what a, a vibrant spirituality might look like for her. And so uh, there are multiple times throughout the movie, and I'm assuming throughout the book, um, where Margaret is talking to God, saying things like, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret Simon. I've heard a lot of good things about you. Uh, at one point to go about this project that she's doing for her junior high, she visits several different types of uh, faith communities, places of worship. And she says, uh, after visiting a soulful black church, I don't know if I got the feeling, but I sure am in a good mood. She's talking to God uh, after leaving that faith community. Um, but at another point, when she's been on this journey and not feeling like she's really finding whatever it was she's looking for, she prays to God, I, I've been looking for you, God. Why do I only feel you when I'm alone? She has this awareness that for her, though, she's been trying to connect with this higher power uh, and communities. It seems to be elusive there, but when she's uh, in her own room, just collecting her thoughts and reflecting, that seems to be the only space that she is uh, able to feel God. At another place, she says, maybe there's nobody up there. Perhaps there's only me. And I'm sure we've all had those places and times too, where that's been a very real impressing thought. It may be where uh, many or some of us are at this very moment. Uh, and at the end of at least the film, and I imagine probably also the book, uh, as Margaret has been through uh, this journey of a school year and also this journey of entering into puberty and all of the pressure and anxieties and insecurities that come with that, um, she prays one last time, are you still there, God? It's me, Margaret. Thanks. Thanks an awful lot. She's experienced this incredible, challenging, tumultuous journey of a whole school year. And I don't know has gotten any closer to being able to name a ton of things that she would believe about this unknown God that she is praying to, but she does find herself able to look back at the majesty and mess of her year with gratitude and with some sense of connection to the divine through that. 
Verse 30, while God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now God commands all people everywhere to repent. Uh, I didn't do incredibly well in either Greek or Hebrew, so whenever I talk about Greek or Hebrew, you should be a little bit alert. Um, But fortunately, I trust people who have written good commentaries who have PhDs in Greek and Hebrew. Um, And they pointed out that if we were to look at this passage in Greek, we would see some version of the Greek word panta, which is all throughout this, even in words that in English translations might be everywhere, always, and that kind of thing. And so that in verse 22, when Paul starts off, he says, I see how extremely religious you are in all, that's that Greek word panta, ways. In verse 24, the God who made the world and all in it, verse 25, God gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. Verse 26, from one ancestor, God made all nations to inhabit all. And then in verse 30, now God commands all people all over to repent. That Paul is envisioning that when these hierarchies are toppled, it is an invitation for everyone to find a place, to find belonging, to find flourishing, to find wholeness, to find community, that that is what he sees God up to in the person, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so when we have this word repentance, this is not primarily feeling shame or guilt around things, but it is acknowledging that we have participated in systems and in ways of being, and that we have harbored idols in our own life that have been destructive to other people and to ourselves, and that we're invited to let go of those things, to renounce those things, to make reparation for those things so that we can be a part of an abundant community. We can practice naming that injustice? What would it look like to name the scapegoating of the trans community for the political and religious power? To acknowledge U.S. interventions in the politics and economics of Latin America and inequalities of liberties and opportunity. To lament U.S. dependency on violence, guns, and deaths in the name of, as the supposed antidote of our fear to the other We can name those injustices and many others, and we can also name the insecurities that are behind those things, the the thought that there is scarcity of wealth and opportunity, the, the thoughts that we perhaps think that perhaps if other people get more, then that means that we are going to have less, and the question how much we need if it really means that others are in such abject poverty. There are all sorts of questions we can begin to have around tradition and our understanding uh of our place in the world. And verse 31, because God has fixed the day on which the world will be judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul proclaims that the good news is that the world is going to be judged in righteousness. That is the Greek word for justice, that in Jesus, God is putting the world to rights, that the injustice, the inequality, the pain, the brokenness that we have experienced and that we have participated in and that has been done to us will be made right. And Paul envisions that this is not only a future hope, but that because Jesus embodies the very justice and righteousness of God in the world, that he is 
at some sense, the very beginning of proof that this can happen and that the communities that are intended to form around Jesus and in Jesus' name are meant to be these kind of counter-cultural communities where perhaps even if as empire is rotting with injustice all around Paul's day and perhaps in our own as well, these communities can be places where the scapegoated, the oppressed, the isolated, the marginalized can find shelter, can find belonging, can find hope within them. The formerly unknown subversion that I finally then point us to is that peacemaking Christ who is our ark and our assurance. You know, many people, including Martin Luther King Jr., would talk about that the ark of the moral universe bends towards, is long, but that it bends towards justice. And that seems to be much of what Paul is seeing. There's going to be a day when everything is made right by Jesus. But also Jesus is with us now in our assurance that we can begin living into that day, even now, knowing it will never fully be achieved until that distant day, but not feeling a sense of apathy, but rather energized by hope to think, well, how do we as a community gathered around Jesus begin to offer that where we live? I was encouraged by Amy Wolfgang. Encourage is probably a nice way of putting it. I felt almost forced into uh, taking a beginning musical theater dance class. It was invitation by Amy. It was just invitation over and over and over again. Uh, and so for the last month, uh, once a week, I've gone to Ballet Austin to participate uh, in this beginning musical dance theater. You have a few images of me doing that um, behind there. And these are all from our last class, which was just this past Tuesday. And I'm trying not to be offended. Like we started off talking about uh, in the class, what is your musical dance journey? And everyone, I've been three years of jazz dancing or four years of ballet. And I was like, my dance journey begins today, right here, right now. Uh, and felt like that for much of the class that uh, it was like, it's clearly, who's the person that's never been dancing before? It's me, it's me. Uh, and on our final day, which was meant to be like when we were gonna pull all the combos that we were learning together, it was a day kind of like this where there was a lot of rain. And so there was really only the instructor and one other person. And so I acknowledged that I walked in there, I was like, I'm feeling really anxious about the fact that we're supposed to be doing a group dance that I feel like the worst of in this room. And there's only one other person here that's gonna be doing the dance. And so our instructor graciously just said, you know what, we'll just shelve all the combos that we're doing. And I'm just gonna teach the two of you a different combo so we can all just have fun with it and do it today. And that's what some of the images uh, that were up there were about. But part of what I realized became important for me was seeing my instructor who knew this obviously much better and embodied uh, doing that and keeping my eyes on her. And even though when I, there's a reason I didn't show you the video, I have a video, but you're not seeing it. Um, even that though, when I watched the video of me going through this combo, I was like, oh, I'm even maybe in some sense a little rougher than I thought uh, and going through this dance. Um, I could see that she was able to embody it and that it's okay for me to learn and to not get everything perfectly right, but that I am trying to follow after her, to learn from her, and that the more that I do that, the more I was able over weeks and weeks 
to embody that. And this is how Paul sees Jesus, that he is the one that we continually look to, that we orient our lives around, and that as we do, we will more and more learn how to embody God's justice and peace in the world. Willie James Jennings says it like this, this new time of repentance is rooted in the resurrection, not death, gift and grace, not subjugation and imperialism. What awaits all people is a new judge, one who is filled with righteousness and set ablaze with justice. This way of repentance invites peoples and nations to see a future that is moving irrevocably toward this new human, the judge of the living and the dead. And so we can express hope in light of the unknown We might consider what it looks like for us individually and as a community to join in solidarity with the trans community. How might you advocate on behalf of the immigrants and refugees on our southern border? How might we work systemically, communally, and interpersonally to break our dependence on guns and violence? And if you're wrestling with other idols, you might consider what it looks like for you to express an alternative vision to those idols this week. Let's pray. Creator of life, justice bringer, and giver of breath, we long for a space where hierarchies are toppled, where the political pawns oppressed and marginalized are invited to flourish. Give us faith to look at our lives, our neighbors, our networks, with the willingness to notice our idols, name injustice, and express hope through the nonviolent forgiving one. May we be a community of stepping into transformation and inviting others to join. May those on the outside be welcome in. May those without belonging find their people. And may we be lifelong learners and repairers of ways we have knowingly and unknowingly been complicit. We ask all this in the name of the God whose image we bear, the resurrection arc of the universe, and the spirit who subverts the status quo. Amen.